There's the asshole himself. <laughs> we still don't have like uh we don't have a soundbite for Craig. We gotta get that. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I know. Come on, Pat. You're supposed to have a recording of the recording. Yeah. Isn't that our plan from last time? Sorry, listeners. Hey, there's make... a lot of plans from last time that, you know, didn't necessarily work out. <laughs> Whatever. We can make that happen. My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tiska, we are the Heresy Grad School. So said the War Master in his wisdom. Go forth, my sons, and illuminate them. Alrighty, well, uh, welcome listeners to another episode of Heresy Grad School. Here with Professors Dave, Jason, myself, Patrick. And we're uh, getting back into the Sisters of Silence. But uh, yeah, do we have any? I think we have some housekeeping we need to hit up hit on uh dave before we jump right in right um so the only housekeeping that i have really pat for this episode uh would be to follow up on my bold assertion uh that i i knew where or i could make a an argument for where star one silent harbor and tacian astra which are secret code designations for the um, Sisters of Silence sort of processing sites uh, right. that we, we talked about last time. Um, so I don't know if that's really housekeeping. Uh, I don't know if I have any real housekeeping that we didn't get to last episode. I mean, can we talk about the awesome news that, you know what, actually, I probably will get this episode out in time, at least for the Patreon listeners, that uh, Dave is going to be at uh, the Black Library Weekender coming up, I guess, this coming weekend, right? I, I am. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's going to be amazing. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm super excited. I, I you know, it, I was on the fence for this for a long time. Um, but this black library weekender has everything that I've ever wanted. And it's been a long time since I've been back to Nottingham, uh, almost 20 years. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been able to say hi to Dan and some of the other authors there in person. So it really felt like the right time to go. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, to talking about it either while I'm over there or, or shortly after I get back. And I mean, if we're going to be honest, half the cast has probably sent you books to get signed by <laughs> by artists. I'm I'm or authors. I'm I'm certainly uh, yeah. one of those one of those silly fools. I'm the uh, author of Overfiend, uh, I, I think that's probably one of my favorite orc books next to the uh, Beast Arise series. So, um, Guys, I'm kind of curious about something, and I've always sort of wondered about this. Yeah. So the Black Library authors, as far as like miniature celebrities go, are they like Leonard Nimoy or like Chris Pratt? Because allegedly, like Chris Pratt never is like, you know, upset about seeing a fan. And is like just as excited to see like the thousandth fan as the first one. 
but like on the other end of the spectrum like you know leonard nimoy famously like loathed star trek fans and he got like so sick of them i'm kind of wondering like where some of the black library authors fall on that spectrum like where like, David Annandale fits and like Dan like, Abnett and is Aaron Dimsky Bowden like sick to death about people <laughs> saying like, dude, I love first class so much. Oof. <laughs> Sorry. Well, Aaron's not going to be there. Unfortunately, he's, he's the only author that I really would love to meet in person um, and uh, have a chat with. Uh, but he's not going to be at this weekender, but literally everybody else is. Um, and I know that Graham McNeil is definitely on the David or Pratt, Jason Pratt, David Pratt, Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt. Fuck it, man. I'm all over the place. I, Just yeah. remember, it sounds exactly like crisp rat. Yeah. Well, he's on that spectrum because he showed up at Adepticon uh, a couple years ago, not last year the year before that and was like walking the gaming floor, talking to people um, and uh, just really cool. Uh, you know, so he is, uh, he's, he's definitely approachable. And um, I think most of the other guys are too. So, guys and girls, I should say. So I'm excited to meet like Rachel Harrison and some of the other black library authors as well. I'm trying to think what, what she has written that I've seen. Um um so she's got the Savrina Rain uh series oh, okay um which is like sort of a you know a imperial commissar as well and then she's written a couple of short stories that are um sort of spooky she's got one that uh takes place on an abandoned space station so pretty Ooh. cool yeah I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to downloading the audio version of that is that the one that just came out the way out it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. I haven't listened to it yet. Have you? I have not, but that's like on my next uh, Audible uh, purchases. Right now I'm listening to, uh, I know we're, we're going a little long, but may as well. Um, right now I'm listening to the new Belisarius Call book. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm loving it, dude. Um, yeah. And uh, small spoilers for, for, for people out there. This is very early in the book, so it's not going to take you long. Um, the three ursine, the three ursine principle. Look it yeah. up. It's kind of funny. It, yeah. It's it's a great jab. And then when he starts <laughs> talking about arc and land, um, yes, it's kind of cool. Just because if you think about it, Call has been around for the entirety of the Warhammer, at least the future product Warhammer. So thirty k up to where we are now, he's been around. He's seen it all. So, and this is a 30k podcast, and there are moments in that book uh, where he flashes back to 30k uh, call. So, it is it is very appropriate. Yeah, there are Guys, multiple spots. You both are doing way better than me because I'm trying to make it through Wolf Spain again. <laughs> oh, don't do that. I have this deal where I save my commentary and everything until the second time I go through a novel, you know, cause I, I go through the first time and just listen to it. I go through the second time and, you know, try and pick stuff out and, you know, things that are, and it's a slog, man. It's, uh, I try not to make fun of a book before I get all the way through with the second time, you know, cause maybe I'm going through it and I'm like, ah, eh, maybe I didn't, maybe it takes a second read, you know, 
<sighs> but Wolf Spain is real bad. I mean, yeah. But also, here's the thing. You only need one read of Betrayer. I'm just putting that out there. Somebody can fight me over it, but I'm pretty damn sure you only need one re- one read of Betrayer. I think I've read Betrayer more times than any other Black Library novel. It deserves to be read more than once. Definitely. It's pretty spectacular. You yeah. get a ton of small details. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was always a big fan of First Heretic, but that's just me. So, oh, yeah. But anywho, we digress. Yes. Yeah. Let us continue on. Quite some digression. Right. All right. So where are we starting today, fellas? I think we're starting on 122, right? This is correct. Yeah. All right. So I know Dave went over this terrifically last time, but there's this cool little quote in the bottom hand, uh, right hand side of 122 that I wanted to read because, uh, well, the planet Gehenna, I think, is kind of uh, important so far as it goes, especially for the Warhounds as a legion. So uh, if you guys have not checked out A Slave of New Syria yet, uh, Angron's Primarch novel, it's pretty spectacular so far as like super deep lore bombs go. Because to the best of my knowledge before this, uh, Galen Serlak never had a whole lot of influence or even interaction that much with the Legion itself. Uh, most of the people know him, you know, as the guy that makes inductees a possibility and the guy who Autech Moore dropped a moon on. And he's actually a whole lot more than that. And he's actually had a lot of influence in the Legion. He's had a ton of interaction with a lot of important characters in the Legion. Uh, Karn, Angron, uh, actually a lot of the Warhounds who influenced um, the almost uh, civil war within the World Eaters when they were still the Warhounds and when they were... You know, having the enormous Legion-wide debate over whether or not they were going to adopt the Nails uh, wholesale. So, if you haven't checked out Slave of New Syria, check it out. It's amazing. But, anyhow, uh, point being, uh, if you'll remember way, way back to our coverage of the World Leader's assault on the Sarum Forge, uh, the Gehinnon Massacre was what essentially they had just come from the entire Gehenna campaign and they cover that super in depth in Slave of New Syria but um, this guy that I'm about to read a quote from uh, of the 227th Gehenna Rifles is probably if it's the same Gehenna which I'm betting it is because you know Forge World Black Library loves like the carryovers uh, it's been repopulated, and it's way, way down the road from where the Warhounds initially sacked the crap out of it. So, from the memoirs of Lieutenant Colonel Gudrun Siax of the 227th Gehinnon Rifles. As a child on Gehenna, I remember the stories of the White Maidens, terrifying ghosts that would come in the night to steal away the witch-born and the children who'd done terrible wrongs. It was said that they could find the wicked no matter how deep in the hive they sank or to what forgotten spire they climbed. As I grew, I came to believe such things were no more than superstition, 
But now that I am an officer of the Great Crusade, bloodied upon the battlefields of a score of worlds, I have come to find that my childhood fears were true and quite valid. So uh, that's a retired colonel, who, lieutenant colonel, who has seen the length and breadth of the galaxy. And uh, it's kind of the stuff at home that worries him. So let's talk about what the problems are here. So the Sisters of Silence as a whole. It's kind of interesting because we start out by hearing not about their organization, but how they're figures of mystery and fear and legend, and have even started to enter the folklore and superstitions of compliant human worlds, despite the efforts and basically the primary job of the iterators of the Imperium is to stamp out you know, these old superstitions and religions and bring them into the boilerplate standardization of the Imperium at large. So the Silent Sisterhood are the kind of, um, they're like the warrior investigators of what's called the Great Tithe, also called the Psyker Cult, or the hunt that never ends. Um, each of them, of course, they're, largest and most obvious feature is they are all uh, what are called psychic anathemas. There are a lot of different names for it, but it is essentially a mutation of the psyker gene. So looking back to a different Black Library series entirely, um, uh, Caiaphas, Caiaphas Kane by uh, Sandy Mitchell. So an interesting point they pull up there, uh, manifested psychers with a worthwhile talent are something like one in a million. A psychic blank is something of one in a million psychers, so essentially one in a billion of baseline humanity. And it really kind of puts into scale like the number of worlds and the number of humans on each of this world on each of these worlds that the sisters have to comb through in order to find psychers and even other blanks like themselves now again this is um the psychic blank uh mutation is actually a mutation of the psyker gene that mutation is called the pariah gene and this is what causes a lot of problems. And interestingly, it uh, actually shows differences in strength. Uh, it can vary individual to individual with some of the untouchables uh, stronger in the phenomena than others. And even though they're such incredible rarities to begin with, it's only the strongest females that express this talent from which the Sisters of Silence are drawn. So, another kind of interesting tidbit, it's not just the humans that find the Sisters of Silence uncomfortable, and it's not just an uncomfortable sort of aura about them. Uh, they spell it out as it goes beyond a simple, like, absence or sentience of something like a mannequin or a robot. 
uh, would show that sort of, you know, imitates humanity, but can never really be alive. It's almost, uh, let's see here. It specifically says it's an observably preternatural effect, which seems to strike against the very fundamental unconscious perceptions of all living beings as something malignant and contrary to the natural orders of existence, those which should not be. And so even to humans with absolutely no psychic gift whatsoever, uh, their mere proximity is enough to cause discomfort and pain, which is magnified 10, 20, 100-fold in actual psychers with a gift. And what's interesting, too, is it's not just among humans. Uh, it's been shown to even unnerve uh, rampaging orcs and make them uncomfortable, which is quite a feat, but to things like the Eldar, which are a very psychically attuned race to begin with, uh, the presence of a human untouchable is something like an acute sense of existential horror. So much more intense to them. And comparatively, where human souls are described as a candle in the warp and a powerful psyker might be a bonfire, these anathemas are complete nothings. They are described as the howling void of nothingness, um, where something should be. And it's because of this that uh, psychers, as well as entities and creatures of the warp themselves, their mere presence is a debilitating poison. Beyond this, not only are some untouchables stronger than others, through training with the Sisters of Silence, it's actually possible for some of the stronger blanks to, uh, through training and other arcane means, uh, make their powers actually actively hazardous. Uh, these are the most powerful that are trained into what are known as the Oblivion Knight Cadre, and they're not used to just harvest psychers and other blanks like themselves, they're used to specifically hunt down and destroy alpha-level rogues. Hey, Jason, I, I, I just wanted to jump in there because I thought that was particularly interesting, right? Is it the sense that you could train a null, train a sister of silence to focus their, you know, sort of innate pariah, um, anathema, I guess, uh, blankness, uh, to be actively uh, harmful to a psyker, right? Anyone with psychic potential, because that's, to me, that's playing off of the um, Calexis, no, not the Calexis, the Calidus, no, the Calexis, right? The Calexis assassin. Yeah. With, the with, uh, yeah, yeah the, you got it right. Calexis is the anti-psyker. Yeah, Calidus right. Calidus is the polymorph. Right. Um, and they, in the, the, the helmet they have is the psyoculum. Is that correct? Sounds right. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't done my research right really well. This is, I'm just kind of going off the cuff on this, but I know that's exactly what the Colexus does with the psyoculum is they sort of focus this anti-psyker, um, you know, potential and, uh, use it to 
essentially obliterate um, psychers. Um, so that's really interesting that there's sort of this ability that can be trained to do that, um, which I think gives credence to the idea that this is a mutation of the psyker gene, right? This is not some, this is not some one in a billion that's happening um, within sort of the human genome. This is a one in a billion that's happening because humanity has developed psych psychic potential. Um, so it is very much a, an, an anti-psyker gene, but it's based on the psyker gene. Almost like you'd have to have the psyker gene somewhere in your, you know, in your DNA in order to develop this pariah strand. I don't know. That's just me kind of pontificating on that. I mean, it, it sounds legit, though. <laughs> So yeah, I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, if we go to page one twenty four, uh, we've we've talked about this, guys. We have actually covered this um, at length in our coverage of the astrotelepathica when we talked about astropaths and navigators. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to talk anything more about this right now. Oh no, um, go for it. All I got left is rules to discuss. Yes, Jason, we will definitely come back for rules. And, and, and I, we'll come back to you for some of your opinions and comments as well. So guys, this takes us to page 125, uh, obviously book seven, Inferno. And I talked about this a little bit last time, uh, the foundation of the Divisio Investigate. So I'm not going to recover old ground. Um, the homework I gave you, though, uh, to research the unspeakable king, um, I want to go back over that. So the Silent Sisterhood, or the first recorded uh, ob observances of psychic nulls or psychic anathemas, were during the unification wars, um, pre-unification, and it was related to the unspeakable king. So he had sort of this uh, bodyguard or cotter uh, that were known as the hollow ones. And this, to, to me, this was just so cool that it, it made me go back and explore the lore surrounding the unspeakable king. And it's incredibly deep. Uh, and here, here's where we need to go with this. So on page 14 and 15, uh, and then page 121 of book one, we learn who the unspeakable king is. So just bear with me for a second while I grab um, book one and turn to page 14 and 15. So... If nothing else, you guys, this is page 14 and 15 of book one. Uh, and we're talking about the unspeakable king. So this is Alan Bly's probably longest breadcrumb trail in any of the books. Right? It goes all the way from book one to book seven. It's in book six and it's in book eight. So we'll, we'll cover all of that here because I think it's, it's, it's worthy of coverage. Um, 
So on page 14 and 15 in book one, we're talking about the darkness of old night and sort of who the, the adversaries were to uh, old earth and the reunification of, of Terra. And the unspeakable king is mentioned uh, here. And then he's also mentioned on page one. Turn to that real quick. Oh, yeah. So um, it's interesting here because Death Guard on page 121. And the Death Guard uh, took some of their heraldry actually uh, from the Unspeakable King. So on page 121, it says, uh, secondly, this I'm on the third paragraph down, about halfway through. Secondly, it subsumed into the emperor's forces all the martial traditions and bloodlines that had for centuries held much of terror, Terra under their cruel grasp and eventually overcome the Pan-Pacific Pan Empire under the rule of the unspeakable king. Such a breed of relentless warlords and soldier scientists was a valuable resource that the emperor was loath to waste. The warlord clans of old Albia did not readily bend the knee to the emperor. Having by then finally thrown off the tyranny of the last descendants of the unspeakable king, they refused to have another master in their place. Instead, the Albians met the emperor's thunder regiments with their own battalions of steam-belching proto-dreadnoughts and armored ironside soldiers. In battle after battle, the forces of unification were held in check, although at shattering cost for the Albians, who would not give in despite the onslaught. So this is very interesting, right? We're talking about uh, the unspeakable king here in book seven as potentially the very first uh, use, user um, of uh psychic nulls and and that would make sense if he was able to withstand the emperor stand against his um you know his warriors um he he probably had some type of uh of of psychic null at his disposal so then we go to book six page seven right because this is all important so we go to book six page seven and uh oh yes yeah, this is this is good so on it, this is this is the quote from the unspeakable king that is graces the the full cover plate. It is an inviolable truth that humanity's ability to destroy will always outstrip its ability to create. It is our curse and our salvation. Combined, our end when it comes will be writ by our own bloody hand. The unspeakable king. So. Hey, we could keep going, and we will. Um, we'll we'll get into book eight and the unspeakable king. I think next time. I don't want to give it all away now, but if you guys are curious, you can read ahead. Uh, try to find the unspeakable king in in uh, in book eight. But to me, this is this is really Alan Bly's sort of uh, one of his most favorite characters, plot devices characters, because we'll see him come back um, again and again. So I thought that was really cool um, as a, sort of a lore bomb for you guys. A lot of plot potential there.
I'd, I'd really love to see some black library authors pick up on it. In fact, when I'm at the black library weekender this, this weekend, uh, I may, I may have to ask Dan about that. Just say, Hey man, do it. <laughs> you know, you know, I will. know you want to, <laughs> you know, I will. No, no, absolutely. Oh, of course. I mean, it's one of those, you know, these, these black books are full of so many, like, fantastic little bits of lore that you can go down so many rabbit holes with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so, so much that still needs to be explored. So, um, okay. So we're here, we're back on page 125 and we're talking about the first harvests. The reason why the emperor, um, you know, the impetus behind the, the unification wars reason the emperor had to go, into the galaxy to form the Great Crusade. We've talked about this before, but it was really, um, it, it was it was the imperative that humanity was becoming a psychically ascendant race, and the emperor needed to control that development. Right, he needed to police them up, bring them back to Terra, get them into the webway, and sort of shepherd them on this journey to be a psychically ascendant race so that they couldn't be tainted by chaos. So the big problem here is how do you do that? And I think this gives credence to the argument that the emperor probably did not have access to either the the, um, the null gene, the pariah gene, um, or, you know, any type of, uh, of, of large body of, of psychic nulls, right? So there were, the Silent Sisters did not exist at this point during the Great Crusade. And they probably didn't exist even pre-unification or unification. So if you read the first harvest and then into the Plague of Madness, what you realize is that the Divisio Investigate really formed a the core of it was formed um, by sanctioned primaris level psychers. So this was the first ever sanctioned battle psyker core. So we think about battle psychers on the on the the battlefield of the 41st millennia all the time now, right? They're the sanctioned primaris psychers. They started here inside of the Divisio Investigate, the Astra Telepathica, and they started to um, they were created to go out and counter that uh, rogue psyker threat that they were going to encounter during the Great Crusade, which makes sense. You know, fight fire with fire, right? Um, if that's all you have, uh, if you don't have the, the pariah gene, if you don't have the silent sisters, that's how you would fight it. I think it also gives credence sort of to something that we were talking about before with the Thousand Sons. And the emperors always got um, redundant strategies, right? Plan plan A, plan B, plan C, all the way down, right? Multiple levels of redundancy. And so probably the Thousand Sons were also uh, a redundant strategy to go out and counter this uh, psychic threat as it would manifest um, during the Great Crusade. But so there was this group of, uh, of primaris level psychers that were drawn into the Scholastica Psychonica was the very first incarnation of the Divisio Investigates. They were, they were um, beholden only to Terra and their mandate was to go out and sort of do exactly what the great tithe did. 
collect psychers, bring them back, sort them, figure out who was, you know, who could be sort of indoctrinated and then who had to be, um, you know, who, who had to basically be sort of disposed of. Or a side Titan battery, depending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just a whole nother conversation, Pat. I, I really, I, I don't think we know where the pilots of those side Titans come from. I think we might know a little bit, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's from the, 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 the tithe. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying it comes from the tithe, but I mean. Oh, you mean get stuck in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. That's, yeah. that's how they power half, the, half that Titan. So it's like. Yeah. yeah hey, yeah. if you can't join them, then <laughs> become part of a cog. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Part of the weapon system. Yeah, dude. Yeah, man. No, it's, it's a good point. Um, so then we get into this really, really interesting story and it's the plague of madness. And so there is this impoverished, but stable world hive world within the soul, within the solar system. It's called Pentacones. Um, it was discovered early on in the great crusade, as you would imagine, um, because it's within the soul system. Sorry, it's within the, the segmentum solar. I don't think it's within the soul system. Um, but it was basically this barely struggling industrial technological based society. Um, and so the Imperium finds it and they build a fleet anchorage uh, around it. They start recruiting from it. It becomes a way station for the solar auxilia and, you know, builds itself up over time to become sort of a, a, a fairly large uh, world that uh, is feeding the Great Crusade. So what happens here is there's an outbreak of, of quote-unquote, madness. Um, there's a, a group called the Final Banquet, which has taken root in a desolate slum sector known as Distempora. And this cult uh, has violently resisted any attempts to destroy it by the local government. And it's rumored to be led by a quote-unquote holy family with the power to work miracles. So this is one of the first missions that the League of Black Ships has been called in to do. You know, so they've been called in to deal with what they think is a psyker threat. Um, so the Black Ships arrive within Pentecost's orbit, and they drop in a quintet of heavily armed gun cutters. Uh, armed with, you know, the top of the line, solar auxilia, battle psychers, the whole gambit, right? They're going in hard. They're going in heavy. This is one of their first tests. And um, they should just be able to take out these rogue psychers. But what happens is uh, they unleash a cataclysm. And the entire world of Pentaconis is sort of turned upside down. Uh, madness descends, there's rioting, there's this unending tide of savagery and slaughter. And it's clear that some form of psychic force has been unleashed on Pentecost. And it's a plague of madness. One in four people fall victim to it. The rest are usually victims of those victims. Um, and so it's, it's basically, it's a pandemic that's out of control. And the captain of the black ships uh, at the time is a guy named Gigan Diantes. 
And Guillaume Dientes realizes that this is quickly slipping out of control. And he's doing everything he can to sort of support his troops on the ground, but they're also falling victim to it. So the solar auxilia regiments he's put down um, are becoming stricken by this madness and turning on each other. Uh, the psychers that he put down are, are all dead or, you know, out of communications. The only unit that he has any type of, of contact with um, is a unit that is the Daughters of the Crow. Um, that was the name that they were given sort of informally. More formally, they were the 5th Indentured Irregular Infantry Regiment from 913. So their planet didn't even have a name. It was 913, which we know from, um, we've talked about this on the main cast as well, from the sort of the, the numbering, um, uh, you know, the, the way we number planets. So that, that would have been the ninth expeditionary fleet, 13th planet to have been discovered. So, um, so 913 was the only designation this planet had. Uh, of course, they were primarily female. Uh, their cultural phenotype was techno-barbarian. So you can only imagine this is inspired by the John Blanche art. So John Blanche inspired the Sisters of Silence. If you look at some John Blanche art that's early sort of techno-barbarian, uh, female barbarian warrior, I'm pretty sure you can find the picture I'm, I'm thinking of. Uh, but that's what I imagine these, uh, these women to be. And so... Uh, the the captain of the Black Fleet, right, uh, Gigan, uh, Diantes, he's he sees that they're the only ones who are not succumbing to the madness, and he's sophisticated enough to know he's been you know been read in that the only way that this is possible is they are psychic nulls, uh, they are they're blanks, uh, they're psychic anathema. So he dedicates the rest of his force to a breakout mission. He drops everything he has to get the Daughters of the Crow out of where they are. And then he drops them into the center of distempora, right? The, the very center of Pentacanes, where it all started, where the madness began, where that rogue cult is. And um, within a matter of hours... It's, it's like a, a, a flip has been switched, right? The, the madness goes out of the planet. Um, uh, people succumb to either sort of a, a state of catatonia or they um, revert back to sort of their previous selves or they're just simply crazy because, you know, they realize what they've done. But it's no longer um, controlled by sort of a hive mind, right? They're just sort of individual pockets now of rebellion which can be squashed. And they call the Sixth Legion in to do that, which of course is what the Sixth Legion does. Um, I would say at this point in time in, in the history of the Great Crusade, the Sixth Legion probably didn't have Lehman Russ. So they were probably sort of the, uh, the Sixth Legion, Grey Legion, disciplinarian, uh, disciplined masters, I think is what they had. Um, so they were probably pretty hardcore. Um, so this is the very first time we know about, at least anecdotally, we know about uh, that the true Sisters of Silence were, were found and were noticed. 
And so what happened very shortly thereafter, at least anecdotally, what we can surmise from the records, the birth of silence on page 126, is that probably within a month, half of the Black Fleet uh, appears at planet 913, and it's almost depopulated. So the entire planet is sort of mined for their um, it, their warrior cast of of psychic nulls. And I just think this is the coolest lore. I think this is so so fucking cool that we have uh, the origin myth of the Sisters of Silence is coming from an unnamed planet found during the Great Crusade. Um, they were feral. Uh, so they're uh-huh. they're not gene cult. They're not like the Selenar gene cult of Luna. They're not doing this through test tubes. Um, they were probably uh, reproducing traditionally, right? I mean, so there were some men in this in this unit uh, of you know the irregular infantry regiment. Um, they just may not. They might not have been psychic. Um, we don't know. But real quick, in case anybody, like, for some reason thinks feral means, you know, loincloths and and uh, maces or something like that. We, we just mean, like, they aren't as technologically advanced as, say, the emperor was, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Exa- and it's, it's weird. I mean, it's, you know, it's the 30th millennia of humanity. So I think when we look at what feral means... You could have regressed, but then you also have really high level technology kind of at your fingertips. But maybe you do walk around in loincloths. You know, I mean, it just it just depends, right? Sort of right. weird, the weird the way that post apocalyptic world um, kind of works. But um, yeah, that is probably my favorite part of this book and this lore um, that we get because I think it suggests to me several things. The emperor in all of his foresight did not know that planet 913 existed, which makes sense, right? If they're psychic nulls, if they're psychic anathema, he can't see them. Maybe, I don't know. Um, But they certainly weren't part of the original uh, plan to explore the Great Crusade. And they weren't part of his original plan to form the Astro Telepathica and the Divisio Investigates. So, so it really, it kind of comes down to this one cat, right, on a black ship in a planet that's about to go uh, into sort of self-destruction. He makes the call and, and he sends in his remaining forces it's sort of a leap of faith, leap of intuition um, to to pull these women warriors out of this hellhole and then redeploy them into the into the thick of it. I just think that is the most badass origin myth. I want to see this movie. I want to fucking read this book. You know what I mean? Like this is good. This is really good stuff. So, um, I didn't have a whole lot more than that pat i just wanted to kind of take a break there take a pause there and see what you and uh, you and jason thought about that i mean i'm i'm right there with you where like we need the 
we we need the movie version of this because like why have they not written this novel yet like that too yeah it's i mean there's so much that's waiting to be written um but yeah this this definitely needs to be written yeah i mean I and I'm not going to I'm not going to necessarily hypothesize on this, but or I guess I really am. Who, who am I kidding? But it almost makes you wonder the disconnect between because I know some of the black library writers have have had their hand in some of the black books. But like, I wonder if there's just a disconnect in there somewhere. I think what what used to happen um, and this this really is it speaks to the loss of Alan Bly. Um, but I know that John French and Aaron Dembski Bowden, Graham McNeil, um, used to write back and forth. Uh, and it was a, just a collegial kind of collaboration on uh, uh, exploring these, these kinds of questions. You know, that if you, if you, if you live in this world long enough, Right. If you sit, if you kind of sit with it long enough, they're the natural questions that come up. Right. Who are the Sisters of Silence? Where did they come from? What's their origin story? Um, And so they would they would just kind of write notes back and forth. And uh, we would get the stories that we wanted to get, Um, you know, and I just I don't know. I don't know what what, we'll see what happens, man. Um, I think. there are a lot more stories left to be written. Um, I said this in the main cast uh, about a month and a half ago, if not longer. When Dan Abnett was on VoxCast, which is Games Workshop's podcast, which is really well done, and I really am glad that they do it. Um, Dan said, you know, what I really want to write is the unification force. And I just fucking jumped out of my seat and I was like, yes, we need Dan to write the unification wars. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, so it maybe perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, he's the architect. So, so maybe we'll get some of these stories, you know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll flush out. We'll see. But, uh, but yeah, man, Good shit. So we're on page one twenty six, guys. You guys wanna, you guys wanna leave it there for, for tonight. I think we probably good. should, and I think we should go in, or I think we should uh, get into some sweet, sweet rules. Yeah, what are we calling this segment? We came up with a name for it last. Yeah, we, the I think esoterica. I, the esoterica with there you Jason. Go. We need a sexy intro for that, Pat. You're not wrong. I think we should do something like Unsolved Mysteries or The Twilight Ooh, Zone. Like, like do, 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 And then a guy in a trench coat, like, steps out of the fog on a dock. Yeah, but how do you do that audio-y? Okay, fine. well, here I go trying to find stuff for you guys. It's a good question. All right, Jason, so what are we talking about tonight? Uh, well, I mean, uh, man, Pat said that, and now I'm just like, what else is Robert Stack doing? Do you think, like, we could totally get him to come on and, like, have a voice clip? I mean... 
I'm not yes. saying. Now, now yeah. while you're talking about these rules, I'm going to be looking him up and seeing if he's doing anything. Probably not, right? Is he still alive? I hope he's still alive. All right. You, you guys get not... to rules. So I'll do. I'll do my producer shit. All right. That's not what's important right now. <laughs> what's important right now is Dave. This is one you asked me to look into personally. So today we're going to talk about go to ground. And by extension, my possibly second favorite rule besides blind is pinning. So going to ground and pinning kind of go hand in hand because uh, pinning is essentially an unwanted, uh, non-voluntary go to ground check. So a couple of fun things to talk about on go to ground. Pretty much everybody sort of knows what it does. You get shot at, you yell, I go to ground, and you get a slightly better cover save. So, in essence, yes, but there are a few points people are unsure of. So, this is completely separate from uh, people think of kind of jinking and going to ground and sort of the same kind of, you know, melange of cover boosting defensive rules. Go to ground looks a little bit differently. First off, jinking you have to declare as soon as the target's nominated. Going to ground is not that. Um, Going to ground is specifically, and this is kind of interesting because it kind of changes the mechanics, uh, after your enemy has rolled to hit and to wound against any of your non-vehicle units, so completely different, uh, before any saves are made or wounds allocated, you can declare the unit is going to ground. So, uh, completely different from Jink. Uh, Some folks think you have to declare go to ground before your opponent even rolls any dice. Not the case. Uh, It's after hits, after wounds. Um, Excuse me. um, After hit and to wound, but before those wounds are allocated or saves are made. So, models in the unit that have gone to ground immediately receive plus one to those cover saving throws. And even on open ground, models can still go to ground and receive that uh, six plus cover save, even if they're not 25% or better obscured by terrain. So, the caveat there, a unit that has gone to ground cannot move, run, or charge. They can only fire snapshots if they wish to shoot and cannot fire overwatch. Uh, At the end of its following turn, so one whole turn, the unit returns to normal. Uh, While a unit has gone to ground, a unit reacts normally if affected by enemy actions. For example, and this is important, it takes morale checks as normal. So that's kind of a big thing uh, because uh, something, one of my favorite things in the world are, uh, for the militia, are alchem jackers. And one of the special things for that is in, if you take a morale check and fail from casualties due to shooting, instead of falling back like normal, you take uh, you go to ground instead, which is amazing because you can't be forced off an objective by failing a morale check and falling back. Your squad just drops and stays there with a better cover save. Uh, Now, another fun thing. So, uh, if the unit is forced to move, for example, like it has to fall back, it returns to normal. Uh, 
If the unit that has gone to ground is assaulted, the unit fights as normal, but because they're not set to receive the charge, enemy units do not receive the initiative penalty for assaulting a unit in difficult terrain, even if it is in difficult terrain. So, that's pretty nice. Now, something also kind of a little bizarre uh, is Overwatch and going to ground. So, specifically, uh, during Overwatch and resolving it, uh, unlike a normal shooting attack, Overwatch, so you know, everybody know when you, you know, declare an assault, the squad you're assaulting gets to Overwatch. Uh, Overwatch cannot cause morale or pinning checks, which is a little odd. You kind of think that would be like a pretty great time for a morale check. Like, oh no, a big scary assault squad is going to charge me. But a plink enough dudes off, it causes them to rethink that charge and, you know, beat it instead. So this is probably more of like a balance thing, but just keep that in mind. You cannot uh, force a morale check or a pinning check on a unit uh, from Overwatch. However, a unit can declare go to ground from Overwatch. So if you declare a charge, you can, for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure where this would come up, but you can declare going to ground as a voluntary reaction to that Overwatch and get that bonus to your cover save. However, then your charge automatically fails. So no clue under what circumstances you'd ever want to do that, but you can do it. The option is there. So, keeping all that of going to ground in mind, we come to pinning. I love pinning. Uh, unfortunately, I kind of think the more and more I read rules that Forge World guys have written, the more I think they're kind of in the same boat I am, and they just have that addition bleed where they've gone through so many additions of, like, Warhammer 40,000 that they just kind of get them mixed up. Like, I'm pretty sure they still think, uh, like, weapons with sniper and uh, weapons with barrage still cause pinning, and they don't, which is unfortunate, because it seems perfect, and it would kind of, you know, give recon marines a little bit more of, you know, any purpose to existence, but it's neither here nor there. So, uh, things that have pinning. Astartes list, I'm kind of coming up blank. However, uh, Mechanicum is terrific uh, because Mauler bolt cannons are the mainstay of pretty much any Cybernetica list. They're on top of Triaros, they can go on Macrocard, they're great, and they're all over the place. So, uh, pinning. Best bolters ever made. Right? Tell me about it. Uh, nobody can explain to me why Castellacs have Astartes bolters instead of the super cool, like, Maxim bolters, but they do. Anyhow, yeah. but they still have that that wonderful Mauler bolter up on top and are absolutely awful to get in close combat with. Oh, yeah. Maulers are terrific and they have been terrific since like book two and Astartes are still mad about it. But pinning with Mauler bolt cannons or whatever else you can find with pinning. It's terrific. Try it out. Um, so. If a non-vehicle unit suffers one or more unsaved wounds from a weapon with a pinning special rule, keep that in mind. It's one or more unsaved wounds, not casualties. So you can, even in squads with multi-wound models, you can wing a single wound off like an Ogryn or whatever else 
and force this leadership check. Uh, it must take a leadership test once the firing unit has finished its shooting attacks for the phase. This is called a pinning test. If the unit fails that test, it is pinned and must immediately go to ground. Uh, as the unit has already taken its saves, going to ground does not protect it against the fire of the pinning weapon that caused the test. However, if you shoot at it again, they do get that bonus. Now, this is spectacular because they stay pinned until their next turn. So, sort of similar to blind, it's a way to make a unit nigh on useless for a turn. So keep in mind several things. Uh, when that unit goes to ground, it is only firing snapshots. So it cannot fire template weapons. It cannot fire blast weapons. It cannot move. Uh, it's pretty great. Um, so as long, uh, second super, super important thing here, Unlike blind, that can only affect a unit once per phase, as long as the pinning test is passed, a unit can be called upon to take multiple pinning tests in a single turn. However, only once for each unit shooting at them. Uh, if the unit has already gone to ground, no further pinning tests are taken. However, if you cause enough casualties in the shooting phase, even if they have been pinned, they can break and run. Now, uh, that's kind of something to keep in mind. Uh, a pinning test you take immediately upon the uh, attacking squad finishing its shooting for the turn. The morale check you take at the end. So it is very possible to pin a squad and then have them break and flee from casualties. So, um, guys, any thoughts there? I'm a huge fan. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, no, this is so good, man. I have a couple, a couple thoughts, a couple questions, clarifications. Okay, so you said when would you want to use go to ground during the assault phase if you're charging and then the enemy is firing? So what I thought immediately was, oh, failed charge, right? If you fail a charge, and so this this then led me to the question of like. When do you roll for charge? Do you roll before or after they fire overwatch? It's after, isn't it? To the best of my knowledge. It is. Which would... Yeah, which would make no sense. So I feel like we got to go back and... But, um, because I thought maybe if you're rolling to charge to see if you could, like, get in distance and then they get overwatch... Uh, and then you fail, well, okay, so you failed your charge. Maybe you just want to drop and go to ground. Um, but I guess, again, this just, you know, there's so many additions. There's so many bleed overs. Um, the other thing, Jason, I was thinking that could be really rude about going to ground is with Thousand Suns. Because guess what going to ground doesn't prevent you from doing? Casting psychic powers. Fuck yes. Oh. And guess... Guess where this just gets ridiculous with with Amon. Oh, hey, um, before, yeah. Just I double checked it just to make sure. Uh, you do. Uh, you pick your unit to declare the charge. The target unit gets to make the Overwatch. Once Overwatch is resolved, roll the charge distance for the unit. So it is after Overwatch. Yes, definitively. So, so the only reason why maybe that 
you would do that is because charge distance is is drawn from the closest model and overwatch obviously you're taking your shooting casualties from the closest model maybe you get to a point where you take a bunch of casualties in the overwatch phase and you just really don't think you can make that charge distance anymore and so rather than roll it um you say hey i'm not going to make this charge i'm going to go to ground i don't know maybe Oh, you know, uh, Will mentioned earlier that maybe in a zone mortalis game, if you make the charge, you're hoping they're not going to roll that reaction fire, and they do, and you're like, oh crap, not going to survive that, hit the deck instead. Oh, that's a great point. No, that's a great point, yeah, because in zone mortalis, making that, it's what is it, an initiative check to reaction fire? Uh, it's no longer an initiative check, funnily enough. Uh, oh, yeah slight modification there it is now a test against majority initiative which sounds like the exact same thing but it's not yeah yeah well so listeners if you are like me and before we recorded this episode i had no idea that forge world uh, had updated the zm rules uh stay tuned because we'll be talking about that probably not here on grad school but maybe um Maybe in another episode of the main cast, or or maybe we will circle back, and maybe it'll be a Jason segment. <laughs> that would be an entertaining one for next time, for sure, for sure, man. Yeah. I I still think I don't know. It it would almost make sense that if you're being shot at by a unit, that you could go to ground again in a in a actual like uh, real world sense. But I understand on a tabletop, of course, it works differently. But. Yeah, so uh, the the two things that pop to mind, you, you go to ground when you're already on an objective and you just want to hold it. You just got to hold it for one more turn and you feel like you're going to take too many too many hits, maybe, um, you know, cause that 25% morale check or wh- whatever, right? Or maybe it's your last guy and you just want a, a chance to survive, hold the oh, objective. Oh, that's a good point to keep in mind too. Uh, when you go to ground... Um, behind either a fortified structure like a barricades, pillbox, what have you, or in area terrain, you get a plus two bonus to your cover save instead of just a plus one. Yes, yeah, ex- exactly. And so this gets really rude. Stick Amon in there, or have some other ability that plays off of cover saves. Um, so I know Amon uh, gives any unit that he's with a plus two to their cover save. And so um, that could just get really uh, brutal, um, especially with Thousand Suns, because you're not, you're, yeah, you're giving up shooting, but with Thousand Suns, Brotherhood. What does it matter? Who fucking cares? You know, um, you're probably, you probably have Smite or you probably have Psychic Shriek or you probably have something else that's offensive, maybe. Um, And so, yeah, going to ground is going to give you a, ridiculous cover save um and you're gonna be there for a turn uh but okay you know maybe maybe that's okay uh i don't know um so that could be fun to play around with that type of uh of of sort of interaction synergy yeah man i definitely learned a lot like i always do uh when i listen to jason and uh i just i think i feel like i need all of these rules jason like on a cheat sheet it would yeah, be like in a handy. Rule book? That's how I did it. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sorry, I, that was really rude of me. Yeah, yeah, like in a rule book. No, no, like in a like in a little like fold up, like little like eight by eleven that I can fold up and stick in my pocket. Yeah, I maybe used to that's keep flashcards. A... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been debating on doing that with mech stuff just because it's still confusing to me. Um, but who knows? Maybe that's something we should look at in the works. I don't know. I love the Mechanicum because they feel like when you explain rules to people, it's like you're making up rules specifically tailored <laughs> to... Like, I love when people are like, oh, well, I'm going to jink. And I have to respond with, well, just so you know, Thalax give negative two to cover. So... Oh, I felt like, like such an asshole doing that at, at the uh, muster, the call to arms. Ugh. Yep. Yeah. But the good thing is you guys were saying it before they like you're giving them the chance to then take it. you're like okay yeah. you know like you're, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. just so you know you know like you're not like waiting till they declare jink and then rolling the die to hit and then you're like oh by the way you no. don't actually have a jink save yeah i feel like that's yeah. kind of should be a common thing amongst mechanicum players just because they have so many wacky outlandish rules <laughs> be kind just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be, that's yeah. that's a good way to put it Agreed. Mm -hmm. If you learned anything from this cast, don't be a dick if you play Mechanicum. Yeah. Because <laughs> there are enough bad ones out there. And you know what? We don't need any more custody players, you know? Oh, <laughs> oh. snap. It hurts because uh, it's true. Good oh. times. But yeah, uh, so I think that's pretty much it for now. Uh, next time, I would love to talk about Preferred Enemy. And yes. why uh, Outcast Sons is infinitely better than Orphans of Betrayal for uh, Rights of War. Dude, let's do it. I am all about it. Waiting on pins and needles for that. Preferred enemy. Finally, I understand this rule. It's <laughs> pretty great, right? Yes. <sighs> well, Jason, again, thank you so much for a absolutely enlightening segment. I did but my best. I hate to tell you, Robert Stack died May 14th, 2013. Oh, man. I, I, I'd like to take a moment of silence to remember the man. Okay, that was, that was the moment of silence. Yeah. Um, the man, the myth, and the trench coat. And the trench coat. Um, but we've got to be able to find somebody that, that, that sort of sounds like that. Oh, yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll find yeah. somebody, goddammit. Yeah. Everything yeah. appeared normal in this common. <laughs> yes. In this, <laughs> in this game until Jason I... used his rules. <laughs> Good times. Did someone say tank shock? Yes. Well, I think that's the end of it for, for us guys. Uh, do we have any plugs, Dave? Um, I don't. I don't think I do. I, I thought I did, but then I don't. Know what I was gonna plug, so um, I don't. I don't have anything, man. I'm good. Yeah. Uh, Jason. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna plug uh, a nap right now. It's been a long day. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a good thing to plug into. Um, I'm gonna plug Schweppes Bitter Lemon. No, I'm just kidding. Um, gonna plug our Patreon. Uh, and shout out to all the people who have uh, signed up for it. Uh, don't forget to hop on there and listen to some uh, sweet, sweet bourbon diaries with Dave. 
Second yes. episode will be coming out shortly. Very cool. So, and with a new improved intro. Ooh, super sexy intro. Thank you guys for doing that. Thank you, Jesse and Pat. Yeah. Uh, shout out more to Jesse. He, he, it was, it was on a day when a server crashed for me at work. So Jesse was just like, Oh, I'll do it. So <laughs> it worked out perfectly. Cool. But, um, yeah, look forward to that listeners. Um, and regardless of if you're a patron or not, thanks for listening anyways, because we love talking and we love seeing that you guys love hearing us talking. So there you go. But goodbye. Squad, good night. Craig, night. fuck off. <laughs>